So open your Bibles, if you've got one with you, to 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel. And take a moment just to take in our amazing graphic. <laughs> I love it. I love it. If you're wondering, what, what is that exactly? Uh, that's a shofar, but it's also a horn of anointing. And that's anointing oil, not fire. It's oil coming out of it, right? Yeva worked on that, put that together. Calling this study ascendancy. Ascendancy. Hmm? Larry, when I want your opinion, I'll ask for it. Or better yet, when I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. It's a hearing aid. That's great. We're going to be looking at that hearing aid for months. <laughs> wow. If that's a hearing aid, I don't even want to know what that oil stuff is coming out of it. That's nasty. Right there. It just blew the whole thing. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Verse one, now there was a certain man from Ramataim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Yehoram, or Yeroham, the son of Elahu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. See, there's way too much Hebrew in that first verse for an early morning. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other was Penina, and Penina had no, or had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord in Shiloh, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters, but to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. And then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than 10 sons? And then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Lord, we come to you as it were coming to the tabernacle this morning, coming into your presence, coming to the temple of the Lord. We come not just in, in physical location to a building, we come by heart to your presence. And we come to hear from you and to learn from you, to sit at your feet. And, and we ask, Lord, for your word to feed and to teach us, to encourage and to build up your people. We all need this, Lord. We need your word in our lives. We need the truth more now than ever. And Father, I thank you that you have written these things down and that you've provided this nourishment for your people. And I thank you, Father, you've provided food for the hungry and for the lost and for the lonely and for the broken. And I pray, Father, even this morning as we study through 1 Samuel, that there will be many who hear and would find healing and rest and Lord's salvation. Holy Spirit, we lean into you to hear what you have to teach us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. 
ascendancy. Ascendancy literally means the occupation of a position of dominance, influence, power, and or superiority. So ascendancy isn't the process of ascending, it's you've already ascended. The ascendancy of David, the ascendancy of Jesus speaks of the rule and the reign, which is why we're calling this ascendancy. It's where we're going in First and Second Samuel, incredibly important section now in the Hebrew scriptures. Isaiah chapter nine, verse six tells us, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty, God, Eternal, Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this ascendancy. The reign of Jesus who reigns right now over your hearts and in your lives, if you have given your life to him, he is in ascendancy over your life, over mine. But understand that for this prophecy of Isaiah, this would be now spoken by Isaiah, oh, 400, 450 years after we enter into 1 Samuel. And yet this prophecy of Isaiah about the ascendant throne of David, this was always the plan. This was always the plan. God had this in mind from before the foundation of the world. In fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis 49, verse 10, you may recall old Jacob is prophesying over his sons. There's no way he could possibly have known what he was saying, but by the Holy Spirit, he spoke truths that are in play to this very day. And he said in Genesis 49, 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him will be the obedience of the peoples. Now, as a location, Shiloh, or if you're speaking it in Hebrew, you would say Shiloh, there's no I sound in Hebrew. So Shiloh as a location means place of rest. Shiloh exists in Israel to this very day. There is a town there and a, and a great discovery there because it's realized and understood from the scriptures and we know now exactly where it was that the tabernacle itself rested for 369 years at Shiloh. So this is after the children of Israel crossed the Jordan, came into the promised land, conquered the promised land. Through the days of the judges, we come to this point where we realize the ark now in the tabernacle is resting at the place called Shiloh and would be there again 369 years. The presence of the Lord in that place, one place on planet Earth, pretty stunning. And so Shiloh means rest. But as a person, Shiloh is Messiah. Shiloh is Messiah. When Jacob says that the ruler's staff shall not depart from between Judah's feet until Shiloh comes, that is that there would be rule, that there would be authority, that there would be power to make decisions over a people for the Jewish people all the way until the coming of Shiloh. And we know that when Jesus came, that power was broken from Judah because Shiloh had come, because the Messiah was here. Shiloh, speaking of Messiah, means that which belongs to him. Okay, so 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until that which belongs to him comes. That is his ascendancy, his rule and his reign. It also can mean, Shiloh can mean his prosperity and peace. So it's that time of the rule and the reign of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Ever think about what your salvation means to him? We talk a lot, about, a lot about what our salvation means to us. You know, we are egocentric beings, so we tend to think in terms of ourselves. And when we talk about salvation, you know, one of the many questions that's asked over and over is, am I saved? How do I know that I am saved? And the focus is very much inward. I'll tell you what, you will never know if, I will never know if I am saved, but I will always know that he has saved me. I have absolute confidence that he has saved me. If I'm part of the process, I'm in big trouble. But he has saved. And when we focus on him, think about this. What does your salvation mean to Jesus? What does your belonging to him mean to him? Hey, your salvation, first of all, and most importantly, glorifies God. The salvation of every individual person, everyone saved, that salvation is glory to God because it's a work that he has done. So it brings glory to his name. But in addition to that, the son came glorifying the father. Your salvation means something to Jesus. John 14, 13, he says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the father may be glorified in the son, but even more so to Jesus personally, your salvation. Well, Hebrews 12, verse two says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Your salvation is his joy. Your salvation matters to Jesus. And he looked through the cross and he looked through the pain and he looked through the sorrow of his 32, 33 years on the earth and he saw to the other side, he saw the joy. David said, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Well, my salvation is joy for Jesus. And that is a comforting and awesome thought. Shiloh in Jacob's prophecy is Jesus who died that his subjects might live by his rule and by his reign. And if you follow Jesus at all, you understand that. But it's no surprise to me that a key moment in the rise of Messiah's ascendancy, which we're gonna see this moment, this morning, we'll see this key moment, but it happened at the door of the tabernacle in the place called Shiloh. So Shiloh would rise to ascendancy, but, but we see early beginnings of this played out there at Shiloh at the tabernacle. We begin in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, uh, the book of Samuel in Hebrew is Sefer. Sefer means book. Shemuel, Sefer Shemuel, if you were reading a Hebrew Bible, that would be the title of this. It's one book in the Tanakh. The Tanakh is the Hebrew Bible. This is just one book. It's not two books. We don't, they don't have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. It's Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. It's one long, continuous book. In our English translations, it's divided into First and Second Samuel. Not a problem. It's just it's just division. In fact, all the divisions and verses and everything were added later anyway. But it was one scroll, the scroll of Samuel. We divided it into two in the English based on subject matter. 
So 1 Samuel primarily deals with, with Samuel himself, at least through chapter 25. It deals with the rise of the monarchy in Israel, a shift from theocracy to monarchy, and it deals with Samuel as God's prophet. Samuel is the last of the judges. So he himself could be considered one of the guardians. I said this several weeks ago when we opened up the book of Judges. Samuel is the last of the guardians, the last of the judges of Israel. So he fulfills that role, but he also introduces the monarchy. So he's bridging now the gap between the era, the season of the judges, not a good season in Israel, to a more stable time for a time, a brief time, <laughs> the kings. So from the judges to the kings, Samuel stands in the middle and he is God's prophet. Hebrews 11.32, we've read many times in the judges, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel and the prophets. So Samuel is both judge and prophet and among the greatest of the prophets of God. Greatest prophet to rise since Moses, and Samuel himself is known in Israel to this day as a great prophet. Samuel will ultimately establish a school of prophets during his lifetime. His accomplishments are, his accomplishments are remarkable, and it's, it's amazing to me to sit here this morning and to talk to you about a man who was living 3,100 years ago and to recognize we still see the accomplishments that were wrought through Samuel by the hand of God. So 1 Samuel deals primarily really with Samuel and, and his prophetic time and, and the work that he did, first with, with the people and then with Saul and then with David. 2 Samuel is going to specifically recount David's ascendancy. So 1 Samuel, you can say, is David's ascending to the throne. 2 Samuel is David's ascendancy, that is David on the throne, ruling and reigning. Ultimately, he rules out of Jerusalem, which we'll see in 2 Samuel chapter five. But this all together, 1 and 2 Samuel as we call it, it's one fascinating book. As we get started in 1 Samuel, a few things just to note. Here's where we're going. In 1 Samuel, we're gonna hear the calling of Samuel the prophet. We're gonna see the Philistines experience the Ark of the Covenant in very unique ways. We're gonna learn about the people's choice. That's Saul, who would be the first king of Israel, but not God's choice for the first king. No, then we're gonna hear about David, and we're gonna witness the anointing of David also in this book. We're gonna travel in 1 Samuel to the Elah Valley, and there in the Elah Valley, we're gonna see David defeat that giant Goliath. We'll visit the stronghold of Engedi, where David hid out from Saul when Saul was murderously hunting him down. We're gonna even study the strange account of the witch of Endor, a fascinating story in the scriptures, the witch of Endor. The witch, she, she's a medium, not a small. <laughs> she's a witch, not an Ewok, because of Endor. See, you Star Wars fans. Okay, that one didn't land like I hoped. As we open the book of Samuel, you need to know that it, is, it remains among the Nevi'im Rishonim, which is the early prophets. The, or the former prophets. So this book, while yes, it's, it's his, historical, but it's a book of prophecy. 
And it's vital to understand that as we go through it, we're going to see many prophetic things, even in the story itself, kind of like we did with Ruth, that little four-chapter book. We, we walk through Ruth, a history of, of that season of harvest, from the barley to the wheat harvest, and yet the prophetic in the book of Ruth was astounding to see what it really meant and what it continues to mean to us today. Same thing with 1 Samuel. This is a book of prophecy. We're introduced here again to the rise of David and then ultimately the reign of David on his throne, but do not forget as we study this that that throne was established for the ascendancy of Jesus, for the reign of Messiah. That's the point of the throne. In fact, interestingly, if you look over at 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel, verse 10, listen to what Hannah sings. We're not even gonna look at this song this morning. We will look at it next week. But in verse 10, she sings, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. A standard that is still in play. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. You can go head to head with God. You, you, can, you can stand opposed to his values, to his principles, to his morals, to his righteousness, but if you stand opposed to God, if you contend with the Lord, you will be shattered. Against them, he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his Mashiach. And that's the first time we see the word Messiah in the Bible. So you might note that in your scriptures. The first time Mashiach is used specifically here of a person, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Hannah, in singing a song, is gonna prophesy of Jesus. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. Now, Samuel was both judge and prophet, as I said, and he's most likely the writer of this book. Written in the 11th century BC, so again, 3,100 years ago, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 25 says, Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote in the book and placed it before the Lord. So there's biblical indication that Samuel wrote 1 Samuel. People say, what all did he write? I believe that Samuel wrote the book of Ruth. I believe that Samuel wrote 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 25. Why stop there? Because in 1 Samuel 25, he dies. So it'd be really hard for him to write any further than that, Okay. He's not gonna be around to do it. The pen obviously changes hands at that point. Although, interestingly, Samuel at least appears to show up a few chapters later after he has already died. We'll talk about that story when we get there. But then who finished and collected uh, First and Second Samuel? This is one of the problems of this, of this book. First and Second Samuel is as one book. Scholars really struggle with this. There's some tough Hebrew here. There, there's some tough reconciling that, that they've tried to do over the years and, and looking at the manuscripts and what the manuscripts actually said and they say. And so there's all kinds of argument to this day as to who actually wrote down First and Second Samuel. I already gave you one verse that indicates that Samuel wrote something down, something of, I believe, of this book as the Bible declares. But if you, if you listen to this, first. Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 29, says the following, the acts of King David from first to last are written in the Chronicles of Samuel the seer and in the Chronicles of Natan the prophet and in the Chronicles of Gad the seer. 
That is, with all his reign, his power, and the circumstances which came on him, on Israel, and on all the kingdoms of the lands. So the writer of Chronicles credits three guys for putting this together, for collating, if you will, this, this history of David. We see these three guys that would be Samuel, and then after Samuel's death, Natan the prophet, and after Natan, or around the time of Natan, a prophet named Gad. We have three men who wrote First and Second Samuel. So I'm just gonna go with the Bible on this and let the scholars debate all they want, but I believe those are the three men who put together the writing of this book. Now, I'm gonna give you an outline real quickly for the book. There's a very simple outline. There's really a three-part outline, three major parts to 1 Samuel. I will break it into five. First, we see the first three chapters, which we'll just call Calling Samuel. Chapters one, two, and three, Calling Samuel. And then chapters four through six, which I believe really deserves to kind of be its own section here, because some would say, well, just do one through seven as about Samuel, and then just do eight through 15 as Saul, and 16 through 31 as David. That's the easy one. Samuel versus chapters one through seven, Saul, eight through 15, David, 16 through 31. You can do that if you want. I think mine's more fun. (laughs) Chapters one through three, which is calling Samuel, chapters four through six, This is about the ark falling into the hands of the Philistines, the entire story there, what takes place. I like to call this one, Here Today, Gone Tomorrow. (laughs) Because this will deal with the Philistine god, Dagon. So here today, gone tomorrow. All right, thirdly, one chapter deserves to stand alone and it is Samuel's ministry and it is the move to the monarchy. So while it's a single chapter, this is the chapter where we see the transition from the way it was in Israel to the way it would be in Israel. So it's a highly significant chapter in their history and where we're going. So calling Samuel, chapters one through three. Here today, gone tomorrow, chapters four through six. Chapter seven, Samuel's ministry and move to the monarchy. And then chapters eight through 15, Saul the people's choice. He gets the people's choice award for the first king. And we'll see how that turns out. And finally, number five, as we studied the book, chapters 16 through 31, I'm just gonna call it Royal Rumble. The Royal Rumble, because this is going to be Saul and the slow rise of David. David anointed, but then Saul going after him tooth and nail. Saul wanting to see him destroyed. Saul not willing to give up the power that had been entrusted to him, not wanting to, and chasing down David, and that's the last half then, of this book. By the way, until 1993, we didn't have a shred of archeological evidence that a King David ever existed. We have what the Bible said. But this this is amazing to me because this is like in our lifetime, in 93. So in 1992, if you said to archeological students and scholars and workers, hey, do we have any proof of David outside of the Bible? The answer was no, we really don't. And many thought that David was a Hebrew myth made up by the Jewish people to try and establish some kind of a history that didn't really exist, you know, a fable, if you will. But the reality is, 30 years ago, so 1993, a late 9th century BC Aramaic inscription was found up at Tel Dan. It's called the Tel Dan Stele, or Stele. And and, and it had the phrase on it inscribed in the stone Bayit David, house of David. And suddenly, archaeologists 
and doubtful Bible scholars were saying, whoa. This tell Dan Steely or Steely was, was actually dated way back, way back to the ninth century, which would have been within 100 years of, of David's existence according to the biblical record. So now we have Bait David. The David deniers, actually, they went right to work to denigrate the find until a second fragment was found. The second fragment, which read, killed Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, and killed Ahaz, the son of, or killed Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of the house of David. So now not only do we have Bait David, the house of David, but we have an entire sentence talking about the lineage coming out of the house of David, the ruling kings of Judah. And then another inscription called the Misha Steli, or the Misha Steli, I gotta get that word down, but, but it's dated to 824 B.C., and the letters here, oh, I'm sorry, that, that was the Misha steel. The Misha steel was 824 BC. The letters Bait David again appeared. Uh, 20 years ago, an Egyptologist was studying this inscription called the Karnak inscription. For those of you who grew up when I did, we're not talking about Johnny Carson here. If you remember Karnak the Magnificent. No, the Karnak inscription here was a, a, a list by Pharaoh Shishonk I and this listing of names, and it referred, there's a reference in there that they discovered, they realized they've had, that, they'd had this list for a while, but they finally discovered recently that it reads in the list, the Heights of David. It's spelled with a T. No one noticed it before because it was the heights of David. What's David? Well, they realized with this, this Egyptologist, very famous Egyptologist, realized that in Egyptian, the T sound would be the D. This is the heights of David. And it was written, named, going back to the time of David, dating back, listen to me, to 924 BC. That is within 50 years of the rule and reign of David. So now we have these three proofs where the Bible's been telling his story for 3,100 years, archaeology has only really started to catch up within the last 30 years. And I love to mention those things because the reality is this book is found true over and over and over and over. The Bible itself says truth springs from the earth and righteousness from the heavens. Truth springs from the earth. And I love how God drops these nuggets of truth through archaeological and historical finds on us in 1992, I could not have told you this. Now I can tell you, we have proof of the house of David. And so the story of David now has evidence from the very land itself. And it's in the scriptures which are always true. So First and Second Samuel is the story of David's ascendancy. But it's always and also the greater story of the ascendancy of the Christ. With that in mind, that's just some brief intro for you. Let's, let's look at the first chapter. Verse one, chapter one. There was a certain man from Ramataim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Yeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu. Tohu is not something you eat. This is a person. The son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. So listen to me. He's an Ephraimite, this Elkanah, but only because he lives there. Elkanah is not from the tribe of Ephraim. That's important to know. 
He's not tribe Ephraim, but the lineage remains quite important here. According to 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 34 through 38, you can look it up later, Elkanah is of the tribe of Levi, not Ephraim. Now, that's important because Elkanah is gonna have a son named Samuel. Samuel is not an Ephraimite. Samuel is a Levite. You'll see why that matters. But it's also partly why, as the story continues, we're gonna see his son, through Hannah, his wife, is gonna be dropped off at an early age to be groomed at the tabernacle. Why would you do that with an Ephraimite kid? That doesn't make any sense. Well, if he's a Levite, then that's exactly where he should be. And he would be dropped off then, as far as I think Hannah will be concerned, for his priestly duty as she devotes and dedicates him to the Lord. Of course, God's calling on this little boy is going to be for a completely different role than that of Levite or Levitical priest. Samuel is gonna be instrumental in shifting the leadership from priest to prophet. That's important because if Israel had accepted theocratic rule, that is God is the king and the only king, if Israel had accepted that structure which God called for them in the first place at Mount Sinai, remember they made the covenant, said this is how it's gonna be, God is the king. And with God being the king, then his priests would be his mouthpieces. But because they are rejecting now God as king, then the priesthood shifts into a different role, and now with the rising monarchy, Yahweh will speak to the people through his prophets, rather than specifically through the priesthood. Hebrews chapter one, verse one tells us, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So Samuel comes along, and while he is of the tribe of Levi, he would be a Levitical priest or could be a Levitical priest. God says, no, I'm gonna have you as a prophet. Now, you're gonna see later on that Samuel has the authority and the right to offer up sacrifices. That's because he's a Levite. So he can do that and has the right to do that before the Lord, and it's appropriate as God calls him to do it. But his primary role is that of prophet. I mention all that because you need to understand that moving from the theocracy to the monarchy, from the priesthood to the prophetic ministry is a signal of a deterioration, not a restoration. In our culture, we can highlight prophecy and the prophets and those who move in the prophetic, and we can think very highly of that. And, and, and even Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 12 through 14, he says, would that all of you could speak in tongues, but much more so that you could prophesy. Because prophecy edifies the church, builds up the church, and so there's a high value that we place on prophecy, but in the history of Israel, to move from priesthood to prophetic now is going to be a deterioration in things. It's a step down, the monarchy is a step down from the theocracy, which was God's intent. And in this paradigm, what we're gonna find out about the prophets is that they are outsiders, that they are maligned, they are mocked, they're ridiculed, and many of them murdered. Such that Jesus would say as he's entering Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, as we call it, which is next Sunday, Matthew 23, 37, Jesus weeping says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. 
How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. So we're in a process now. Yeah, the times the judges were bad. Going into the monarchy, you could say, well, at least we've got some stability. Oh, just give them time. But it is a deterioration in terms of God's plan for his people. The people's choice is always a deterioration. The people shout, give us a king like the nations, and it is a downgrade from the way it would be with God. And you note that in your own life. Man, when I wanna do it my way, I can do it my way, but my way is a downgrade. Or I can do it God's way, which is holy and right. He gives me the choice. Verse two. So we see this man, we have the impressive family line, and the family line is a family line of Levi, but verse two tells us he had two wives. Oops. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Panina, and Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Elkanah, as a Levite, is not especially spiritual. And, you know, I can, I can Monday morning quarterback with this guy. It's real easy to look back 3,100 years and really judge these characters and these individuals. I think there's a reason why he has two wives that in the culture would make sense, though it would not be in alignment with God's desire, with God's plan for his people. God never approves polygamy ever in the scriptures. Well, how come David had multiple wives and Solomon had hundreds of wives? How come? Well, because people like to do their own thing. And the Bible acknowledges what took place, but God never says, oh, that, this is fine with me. Have as many wives as you want. God knows what I've learned. I can barely keep up with one. <laughs> Just want you to know that. But he's got two wives, and there's more to this man that shows us, doesn't seem like a super spiritual guy. He does not reside in a priestly city. He's a Levite. But he's living here in Ramathim Zophim, which is not one of the priestly cities assigned to the Levites in Israel. So he's now living outside of the location of his calling. I don't know how that played out. You know, did God call him to a certain place with the Levites? But he said, nah, I'm gonna live over. I'd rather do my thing. So he's outside of even his role, outside of the priestly cities. He goes to Shiloh to worship once a year, but he seems like more of a special event kind of guy. You know, he'll go for Christmas and Easter, but don't bother me the rest of the time. And again, he's got two wives. He's a good guy, but not necessarily a spiritual man. And part of me wonders as I was thinking this through that I wonder if that's why God ultimately causes Hannah's barrenness and makes, it, makes her and makes this Elkanah wait and wait and wait for him to have a son by his first wife, Hannah. She is his first wife, his main wife, his beloved. Elkanah is not, or not, uh, uh, Penina is not. But Hannah is, and, and I wonder if God closed her womb to be sure that when the time was right, little Samuel would be raised at a different house, the house of the Lord rather than the house of Elkanah. Hannah means grace. Great name, it just means grace. Panina means pearl or ruby, but this woman is no jewel. She is his second wife, why? Why two? Probably because Hannah was barren. And there was nothing worse in the culture than for a woman to be barren, both for the woman 
but also for the husband, because now how do I continue my line? How do I produce now sons and offspring to continue the family line? And so what the men would often do is if their first wife was barren, which seems to be more common than you might think, he would get a second wife so that he could produce offspring. Didn't Abraham think that was the way to do it? And many down the line thought, well, if, if number one can't do it, I'll pull in, you know, we'll call in a ringer. <laughs> And we'll have children this way. And I think that's what he was doing. And it's what the culture did. Hey, it's what the people did. So, you know, that's not a big deal. Again, never approved by God. Jesus said, have you not heard from the beginning that God made them male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Not the three, not the multiple. And it's not a man in his washing machine. It's man and woman, and it's always been this way. I know, it was a little weird, wasn't it? Just... It's always been this way, a man and a woman for life, and that, that's God's divine design, but here's Elkanah saying, well, you know, Hannah, you can't, so we need to bring in this Panina, and all he does is bring in a serious problem for the family. Verse three, now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship, and a sacrifice to Yahweh of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, oh, these guys are award winners. A couple of morons, we'll get to them eventually. But they were priests to the Lord there. And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. I credit him with this. He loved her. She wasn't a cast-off wife. He really did have eyes for her. He adored her, and so he would give her a double portion when they went up to this feast, this festival to the Lord. But, verse five, the Lord had closed her womb, and here we are again. Through the scriptures, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, we have the wife of Manoah, Samson's mom. All these ladies were barren. Ruth, who is often not recognized as barren, but as we talked about a week ago, I think she was, because it took a divine act of the Lord for her to be able to give birth and then to have little Obed. So Ruth, I would place on that same list, and now we come to the sixth woman in the scriptural story, Hannah, and she is barren. Consider this, think about this, barrenness and weakness and emptiness, something from nothing, the womb of impossibility, this is the realm of God's profound work. This is where God gets busy and starts to work things out that could not be worked out by human effort. This is the place where he does great things. And if you struggle with this, and I've talked to many sisters over the years who have, who have struggled with childbirth or have, have lost a child and there's so much pain there, and I don't want to diminish that in the least. But the question is often, why? Why does God do this? Why must I be in this position? Or why does God do this to all these women? Isaiah chapter 29, verse 16, the prophet says, you turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? that what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me, or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. You don't understand God. 
This is difficult for me. This is painful for me. This is not fair to me. How, God? Why, God? I'll tell you what. Instead of asking why, God, as if he owes any of us an explanation for anything, instead of being argumentative, which Hannah never is, by the way, better to say, be praised, O Lord. I may not understand, but you are God. I may not know why I'm in this season, why my, my body won't do what it needs to do, or why I've had this difficulty in life. I don't understand, but you are God. It's one of the greatest step forwards in faith that you can possibly make. I don't get this, but you are God. So whether I understand or not is irrelevant. Whether you prove yourself to me or explain things to me or not is irrelevant. You are God, and I will trust you. Now, it is especially difficult when there are those around who see our weaknesses and jump on them. They see our weaknesses as pathetic or even laughable. Verse six, her rival, however, that is Penina, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Nice gal. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Her rival, the word is sarot. Sarot is used of a concubine or a secondary wife in competition with the first wife. It's part of how we know Hannah was the first wife. We also see that she's named first which in the, in the scriptures makes it pretty clear the first one named comes first. And so you've got Hannah and Penina, but Penina would just provoke and make fun of. You can imagine they go up to Shiloh for this worship celebration and she's like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me just count all the kids. Oh, three, four, five, seven, 10. Okay, yeah, they're all here, Hannah. We can go. And Hannah's got no children. And she, we don't even know what she said, but she was mean-spirited and provocational I like how David Davis uh, described her. He, he says, Panina is an overly fertile, mouthy thorn in the flesh. <laughs> She's baiting and irritating and winding up Hannah until the sobs break out. This is a mean-spirited woman. And her resentful ragging on Hannah note this, it rears its head. The Bible says, every year annually at Shiloh. It's almost as if she waits for this to happen, waits for the gathering of the festivities and the celebration for the, the Christmas family gathering, and that's where she starts to dig into Hannah. That's where she starts to make fun of her and to, to, to rag on her. She goes up to the house of the Lord, but flaunts her offspring and needles Hannah right when they're going up to worship. There's supposed to be joy in the house of the Lord. Right, we're supposed to be focused on him. We gather together, we fellowship, and it is supposed to be about him, not me, not you, not us. But when it's about him, and get this, when my focus is on him, I'm not gonna be hassling others. When my sense is on Jesus, when I come up to worship and to hear God's word and to fix my eyes on Jesus, the result should never be provocation or conflict or jealousy or envy. 
Psalm 147 verse one says, praise the Lord for it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant and praise is becoming. Praise is becoming. I first heard that and I thought, that, that's why I wanna be a worship leader. I will be better looking for it. <laughs> that's why when we worship the Lord and, and all, all facetiousness aside, all joking aside, when we worship the Lord, we become more beautiful in his sight our lives express more of the, of the beauty we were created to be a part of. This is why worship is such a key aspect of eternity, of heaven, because it's beautiful. It makes his people beautiful in how we look, yes, but much more how we treat one another, how we look to our God. What we experience together is a beautiful, unifying, wonderful thing when we worship the Lord. That's why worship has always got to be a key aspect of what we do when we gather. First Timothy chapter one, verse five also says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Why did they go up annually? We don't know what this celebration was, by the way. We don't know if it was Pesach, Passover. We don't know if it was for Shavuot or something else. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It's just there's an annual event, an annual festival, feast to the Lord at Shiloh, and the people would all go up. And man, when you go up, you go up and worship. You go up, there would be priestly instruction. But the goal of that instruction and the goal of our teaching here in, a, in this fellowship is supposed to be love. And remember this. 1 Corinthians 12, 24, God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. Hannah. Hannah, in God's economy, would have the more abundant honor. Then Panina, with her dozens of kids, it's Hannah who lacked that God is going to honor. And Paul says, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And again, I remind you that God's modus operandi is in the realm of impossibility. There's an impossible situation here, a family that is completely dysfunctional here. Can you imagine Elkanah trying to deal with now his two wives and the bitter second wife pouring on all the ache and hurt and pain onto the first wife who he loves? And what do I do with this? Well, I, I don't know, I'll give her a double portion. In fact, while Hannah is aching rather than celebrating at Shiloh, verse 10 tells us Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than 10 sons? Husbands, listen to me. <laughs> You're never good enough for your wife. You are, ne I, I'm not saying you can't be a great husband. You are never enough for her. She needs Jesus. And you need Jesus. And you are not the answer to all of her life's difficulties. And sometimes, rather than, honey, honey, what are you upset about? Come on, it's me. You have me. I have tried that for years. It doesn't work. Sometimes, what the wife needs is the husband just to listen and just to show some compassion, just to say, sweetheart, I know this is difficult for you. You are not, guys, always the answer. Verse nine, then Hannah rose after eating and drinking at Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, 
was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Eli, by the way, would also be a judge. He would be the 13th in the line of the judges. He's a judge priest at this point, and then Samuel will be the last judge. Eli, well, we'll see his story. Kind of a sad story of the, of the high priest there at Shiloh. But he's sitting by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she, that is Hannah, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Literally, Hannah was greatly bitter and wept bitterly. The word greatly distressed is marat. Do you remember the word mara? Of the people by the waters of Mara, it was Mara means bitterness. And this is, this is now Hannah's heart. It is a bitter time. These are bitter tears. This is not like that acidic, acrimonious bitterness. You know, I'm bitter toward people. This is just, this is a bitter pain, a bitter pill to swallow. And these are bitter tears of a deep and lasting pain, tears to which, by the way, David could later attest. In the sixth Psalm, Picking up in verse six, he says, I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. Have you ever cried that hard? Listen to what David says here because there's a prescription to the pain. He says, my eyes wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard my voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. Yahweh receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They will turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. Why? Because Yahweh has heard my pain. What is the balm for bitterness? What's the remedy for resentment in our lives? And the answer is very simply faith. It's faith, not religion, but faith. It is trusting that God hears my tears. God hears my tears. This is why Hannah has gone to the only place she could think of, the only place in all of Israel that she knows to go is the doorway of the tabernacle. As a woman, she can't go in she can get as close as possible. We, we've seen this in Israel. There's a, a place called the Rabbi's Tunnel and you walk along the tunnel and it goes underground along the Temple Mount. And there's a, a position in there about halfway through where we always come across several ladies that are sitting in chairs praying. It's the position that they believe is directly across from where the Ark of the Covenant was. What are these ladies doing there? They're getting as close as possible to where the Ark used to be or perhaps is. <laughs> and I was told the last time we were there, Roni mentioned, you know many of these women come here because they are barren and they come here to pray. So this is Hannah getting as close as she possibly can to the presence of God, the only place she could go to ameliorate, ameliorate her pain and out of her sorrow, listen to what she begins to pray. She made a vow and said, O oh Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come upon his head, which means she's making a Nazarite vow for a child she doesn't even have. 
Nazarite vow was that vow of devotion or dedication. It could be short-term or it could be lifelong, and Hannah makes a lifelong vow that if you will give me a son, specifically, she prays, if you will give me a boy, I will dedicate him to you. He will be devoted to you for the rest of his life. He'll be yours. And a razor will not touch his head. Remember, they wouldn't cut their hair. They would stay away from any alcohol, anything, even, even grapes, anything related to alcohol, and they wouldn't have anything to do with dead things, the Nazarite vow. And so she makes this vow, but this is amazing. Out of her sorrow, note, note three things here. Number one, Hannah knows her God. She knows her God. She calls him there at the beginning, O Lord of hosts, this is Yahweh Sabaoth. Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of hosts. And my friends, this chapter is the first time we see that phrase in the Bible. The first, first time, this is the second. The first is right back in verse three, where it says this man will go up from year, his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. So that's cool, that makes sense. Elkanah, as a man of Israel, is going up to worship the Lord of hosts there. Yahweh Sabaoth, this is Lord of armies, Lord of war. This is a powerful designation for God. And these are the first two times here that we see it in the Bible, Yahweh Sabaoth. We'll hear it 10 times in the book of Samuel, and the prophets love it. They will use it all the time. Overall, God is going to be called from here forward, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, 239 times throughout the Bible. But it's not usually a mama's term. This is not typically the term that, I mean, this is a woman crying out to God in prayer. Lord of armies, she says. Lord of warfare, she says. That seems a bit out of place, except that Hannah knows her God. And I point this out, it's so important to recognize, why not call him God of creation? Or why not call him father to the fatherless? Why not any number of other names of God used by others? How about El Roy, God who sees? No, she calls him Yahweh Sabaoth because she is appealing to the same God who fought for and delivered Israel from Egypt. She knows her God. In her impossible situation, she is appealing to the God who routed Egypt, to the God who parted the sea, to the God who brought the plagues, to the God who has shown such power that this is the God she cries out to, the Lord of hosts. And note, and the reason I make this connection to him bringing them out of Egypt is she says then, look on the affliction of your maidservant. Exodus chapter three, verse seven, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. The Lord of hosts knows the sufferings of his people. And Hannah with faith at the doorway of the tabernacle is crying out to the Lord of hosts because he's the power, he's the one who can bring deliverance. Do you know this? Do you realize that the same Lord of armies sees your affliction, is aware of your 
personal situation? Do you appeal to that same deliverer who delivered millions literally from bondage? That same deliverer is the one who can deliver you from sorrow and bitterness and even personal suffering. It's quite stunning the way the the Lord does that. I've mentioned before that the dichotomy between he is God most high, he is highly exalted, and yet he is with the lowly. That is not like us. The more highly exalted a human being is, the more they tend to have nothing to do with the lowly. But our almighty God, creator of the entire universe and Lord of hosts, delivers a single woman. How many women, in fact, if you asked the question earlier, why would God do this to all these women? How many women has God tended to personally in the scriptures? You ever thought about how he just, he he meets them where they are. He didn't have to do that. He's God. How dare you question me, he could say, but he, he meets Hannah here. He met Sarah in her barrenness. He met Hagar in the wilderness. This is the God who cares about the most seemingly insignificant suffering, something insignificant, insignificant to us, very significant to God. So Hannah knows her God. Secondly, Hannah knows her position before him. She uses the word maidservant three times. It is the Hebrew word amat, same word that Ruth used of herself when she presented herself to Boaz. She said, I am amat, which is the lowest form of a maidservant. And Hannah says this again three times in her prayer. Look on the affliction of your maidservant. Do not forget your maidservant. Give your maidservant, she says, a son. She knows her place. So as she's crying out to the Lord here with a, with a bitter spirit, she is not angry. She is not accusatory toward him. She's humble and submissive. She knows that what she asks depends on his will, his determination. He is the master and Lord. She is the maidservant. Peter said, 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And thirdly, this Hannah who knows her God and knows her position, she knows what matters. She knows what matters when she says, Give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come upon his head. All she wants for her son, parents listen to me, all she wants for her son is that he belong to Yahweh. She doesn't want a son to drag up and down from to and from Shiloh every year so she has something to argue. She doesn't want to have a son around the house who can beat up the kids of Penina. She doesn't want a son to make herself feel like she's worth something in the world. She wants a son to give to God. I love Hannah's heart because this is a woman who knows her God and knows her position and she knows above all things what matters the most. She knows, by the way, he'd be a Levite. Remember, being married to Elkanah, she knows her husband is a Levite. She knows they don't live in a town of Levi. She knows he's not functioning like a priest. She doesn't want the same for her son. She wants a son who will serve the Lord. And so she even commits to him, to the Lord, that that, that her son would be a Nazarite devoted to the Lord for his entire life. Now, as a parent these days, you might say, well, I'm just gonna let them decide who and what they wanna be. 
I've said it before, and, and I mean this with all sensitivity possible. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard a parent say. That is absolute foolishness because you don't do that with your child. You don't say if your child says, I want candy for breakfast, you don't go, well, if that's what you want, sweetie comes. If that's what you think that is good for you, whatever you do, I'm gonna let you make all your own decisions. Your child will be dead by the age of two. You make decisions for your child all the time. You raise your child in the way you think that he or she should go. And perhaps it comes out of, I don't know, heavy-handed parenting in the past where a child grows up out of strictly legalistic and religious parents and says, I'm not gonna do that to my kids. My kids are gonna have a choice. The problem is that when I hear that, typically it's from a a parent who is not giving their child this choice. They're just throwing their kids to the wolves saying, whatever you wanna believe is fine by me. And we're seeing that play out in stunningly horrible ways today. I'm gonna let him decide. I'm gonna let her decide. Whatever they wanna be, whatever they think they are, whatever they want to believe, that's fine. That is not what the Lord calls us to be as parents. Do you pray like Hannah for your kids? Can you, let me ask you this, can you pray that your son or your daughter be devoted to the Lord? I'm not saying, can you force your son or daughter to be devoted to the Lord? They have a choice. But can you pray that they will be? Can you be like Hannah saying, I will devote him to you. I will give her to you. They belong to you. Lord, can you sing like the old Keith Green song, one of my favorites I've shared with you many times, I pledge my head to heaven for the gospel. And he goes on to say, I pledge my wife to heaven for the gospel. And the third and most painful verse, and it's so touching, is I pledge my son to heaven for the gospel. Though he's kicked and beaten, ridiculed and scorned. I want my kids to know Jesus. I pray for them to know Jesus. I talk to them about knowing Jesus. What they do with that, they decide. But for my part, I am gonna pray that they are devoted to the Lord. We can't force faith and devotion again, but we make all kinds of decisions for our children to set the pattern for their life, and the Bible says Proverbs 22:6 train up a child in the way he should go and even when he's old he will not depart from it which i remind you parents with prodigal kids it doesn't say he won't depart from it it says when he's old he won't depart from it and as a pastor i've watched many people come back to the lord in their 40s 50s 60s 70s yeah my parents took me to church when i was a little brat and then i stopped going when i was 17 18 years old but i'm back Train up your child in the way he should go. Entrust them to the Lord. Well, verse 12, so she prays this remarkable prayer, but watch how she prays. It came about in verse 12 as she continued praying before the Lord that Ellie was watching her mouth. He's right there. Remember, he's sitting on the chair by the doorway. She's at the doorway. So he's only a few feet away watching this woman, and it came about, verse 13, as for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard, so Ellie thought she was drunk. I wanna tell you something. You gotta watch for this as we go through 1 Samuel. One of the blessings of the entire book of Samuel is its focus on prayer and what we can learn about how to pray and what is, what is true, authentic, genuine, honest prayer look like before the Lord. 
First Samuel opens here in chapter one with Hannah praying. Second Samuel is gonna close with David in prayer. So the whole book is bookended by prayer. And here what we're reminded of as we look at Hannah, we read in verse 11, we see the words that she prays, but we suddenly realize you wouldn't have heard them because she doesn't pray out loud. This is what was in her heart. This is what she was praying, but her lips were moving. No sound was coming out, and we're reminded that God hears unspoken prayers. And this is so precious. God hears unspoken prayers. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 7, when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. They suppose they'll be heard for their many words. You might say for their eloquence, for their repetition, for their religiosity. They think they can lift up these amazing, impressive prayers and that's gonna get it across and it has nothing to do with the words. It has everything to do with the heart. And Hannah's heart is toward God and for him and his will and purpose in her life and she is pouring out before him. If you don't pray because of a lack of eloquence in your life, let me just ask you this question. Can you groan? Because that's what Hannah's doing. Her lips are moving, but she is aching and groaning in this. Romans 8, 26, the spirit also helps our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That can mean two things, by the way. That can mean he intercedes with his own groanings that translates into a language Jesus hears, God understands. It can also mean that he translates your groanings, your groanings that are too deep for words that you, you know what you wanna pray, but you can't even get the words out. And he who searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is he knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to God. So this is the Spirit who is bringing the, the groanings. This is Jesus who's interceding so that the Father hears. This is Father, Son, and Spirit working together in your unspoken prayer. You don't have to be impressive. Just be honest. Hannah is speaking in her heart, the Bible tells us. I, I love that. And God has no trouble translating because we have it right here in verse 11, what it was that she was actually praying. He translates the groaning prayers of the heart. But Ellie thought she was drunk, which should tell you something about Ellie to make that assumption. Then Ellie said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. Hey, it's party time at Shiloh. Probably not the first person who drunkenly stumbled toward the tabernacle, praise the Lord. And Ellie going, <laughs> of course, then there's his two idiotic sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were probably major drinkers. They were players, I can tell you that much. Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before Yahweh. She wasn't drunk because of the pouring out of whiskey. She was aching from the pouring out of her soul. This is mental anguish. The Bible says in Psalm 62, verse eight, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. 
You can turn to him, pour out your heart to him anytime, anywhere. You can be honest and open and real with God. His, he is not upset by your prayers. He hears, he responds. Talk to him, be open with him. Not because he doesn't know you or your situation, but because he wants you to know him. And he's a refuge. I love how David says that. Trust him, pour out your heart before him because he's a refuge. Our country is all into safe spaces, which is another just lame thing. God is my safe space. God is my refuge. No matter where I am, I could be in the middle of a rioting crowd and have a safe, safe space with the Lord. He is our refuge. So don't hide behind religious platitudes. Don't think you gotta have some kind of ritual cliches. Just talk to him. By the way, side note, there's another time in the Bible where a bunch of people are praying out loud, joyfully, and they're thought to be drunk at Pentecost. You might recall the story. And, and, and they're not drunk. I love how Peter says, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. <laughs> Peter. I mean, you know, I'd understand you think we're drunk if it's like 9 p.m. Woohoo! No, that's not what he's saying. He said, we're not drunk. This is what Joel prophesied. This is the Holy Spirit poured out upon us. And what were they doing? The Bible tells us when they were speaking in tongues that everybody heard in their own language, which really is more a, a miracle of uh, hearing in tongues because <laughs> everybody heard what they were saying. What were they saying? The Bible says they were worshiping. They were praising the Lord. Here Hannah is praying to the Lord. In both situations, they were thought to be drunk. No, they were not drunk. They were approaching their refuge. Verse 16, do not consider, Hannah says, your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken now, until now, out of my great concern and, and provocation. The word provocation means grief. It means grief. I'm in pain here, she says. So I'm telling this to the Lord. You know what's great about Hannah? She boldly approaches the same throne of grace that we can have confidence to approach. This is even before Jesus made the way. Hannah approaches the throne of grace. Hebrews 4, 16, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Don't fear that if you go before the Lord in the throne of grace, that you enter that place of refuge and you pour out your heart. Don't fear that he's not gonna answer your prayer. I can't pray that. Because if I pray that and I don't get the answer I'm looking for, then my faith is gonna be diminished. Wrong. You pray to the Lord and your faith is increased regardless of the answer. Because as you go to your refuge, as you go to your God, you begin to realize he knows what he's doing. I don't know, but he knows. And Hannah trusts him in this. Verse 17, then Ellie answered and said, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away, watch this, and ate, and her face was no longer sad. What happened? Was she immediately pregnant? Nope. Did she sense a jolt go through her body? Nope. What changed for Hannah? Faith replaced her pain. Did she have an answer to the prayer yet? Nope. She poured out her heart before the Lord and God filled her heart with faith. 
and there's no answer here. And there's no movement of the Lord in her abdomen, in her womb, there's nothing. But suddenly she comes out of this place of prayer and the sadness is gone. And she takes food. She's hungry, she eats, she's not sorrowful, she's settled and she worships before there's a single response or answer to the prayer. Verse 19, then they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife. That is that they had sexual intimacy together and the Lord remembered her. Hmm. Wait a minute, had he forgotten? No, <laughs> no. This phrase, the Lord remembered, we see this in the scriptures from time to time, and it literally means the Lord was mindful of her. The Lord was mindful of her. He, he took note to her prayer. He responded to her. Isaiah 49, 15, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you, says the Lord. So he's mindful of her, and he responds to her asking, verse uh, 20, came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Shmuel, Samuel, because I have asked him of the Lord. And then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow, but Hannah did not go up. So this is a year later. She said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned, which in ancient days would be three to five years. She, she's gonna nurse him and feed him and make sure he's, He's beginning into childhood here. I'm not gonna go up until the child is weaned. She says, then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Listen to what Elkanah says. Her husband said to her, well, do what seems best to you. I've said that so many times. <laughs> All right, you think that's what you, okay, do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only, only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. May the Lord confirm his word. What word? What is Elkanah saying here? He's saying, just be sure that the Lord does want Samuel. If you feel like you need to give him to the Lord, because this now is Elkanah's first, well, not first more, but it's his son, through his wife whom he loves. And he's about to lose him? So I get him three or four years here and then you're gonna take him off and, and deposit him at, at, at Shiloh? But he says, well, you prayed for this. You wanted this. I guess I got all these other kids scattered all around, so what's one more? Do what seems best to you. But he says, but make sure God confirms it. I hear a statement of doubt. A statement of doubt from Elkanah. Make sure God confirms it. Well, she's already been pregnant and given birth. What kind of confirmation do you need? <laughs> you know, it's kind of like the, the Pharisees saying to Jesus, show us a sign that we might believe in you. Did you eat the bread and the fish? Were you here for all the miracles? What are you talking about? Show you a sign. And Elkanah, he wants some confirmation. Watch this, verse 24. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull, some translations will say with three bulls, that's possible, probably a three-year-old bull, and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to 
the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. And then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. She said, oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him, so I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. And note this, it's not that now old Ellie's like, what, I gotta raise a child? Oy vey, have you seen my two sons, Hophni and Phineas? And now you're giving me this? Remember, there were women who served at the tabernacle at the doorway of the tabernacle. One we pointed out in the judges would have been Jephthah's daughter, perhaps. But there were women who would be there to nurture and raise and care for in, in, in a mother, mothering figure, uh, Samuel. And, and I know, I'm sure Hannah was back to visit many times. Elkanah would go see his son there. So this wasn't just dumped on the old man, Ellie, who's not long for this world anyway. But where's the confirmation? There's no confirmation here. Hannah just goes up and says, Ellie, here's the boy, here he is. You know what? Because for Hannah, the confirmation was the miracle. The confirmation was the birth. Samuel was born out of barrenness. What more do you need? I almost can imagine her coy smile when Elkanah said, get a confirmation. She's like, oh, honey. And I've heard that one before too. <laughs> oh, honey. We don't need comfort. I know. How do you know? I know. I hate when she knows. <laughs> Hannah knows. Hannah has the confirmation grow in her womb. She gives birth to the confirmation. She doesn't need any more. It's a woman of great faith. So she hands him over to the Lord. The Listen, the confirmation of devotion was the birth of the child because birth matters to God. Birth matters to God. Oh, I haven't told you the meaning of Samuel's name. Back in verse 17, note this. She says, uh, Ellie says, go in peace, may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him, or that you have been asking. For. In fact, he says it twice. May he grant your asking that you have asked of him. And then in verse 20, Hannah named him Samuel because I have asked him of the Lord. Samuel, Shmuel means asked of God. Asked of God. You could say Samuel is the Lord's for the asking. His name asked of God. And note this at the very end of the chapter. Verse 27, four times she uses the same word. She says, for this boy I prayed and the Lord has given me my asking which I asked of him so I have also asked him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is asked to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And he is Samuel. He worshiped the Lord there. Samuel, from this day forward, began worshiping the Lord, even as a child, there at Shiloh. Ascendancy. The occupation of a position of dominance, influence, power, and or superiority. And at each and every stage, the ultimate ascendancy of the Christ began with a birth. It always does. Ruth 4.21, to Salmon was born Boaz, to Boaz Obed, to Obed Jesse, and to Jesse David. 
To Hannah here is born Samuel, who will anoint David to be king. Ultimately, in David's town of Bethlehem, the Messiah, Jesus, God's anointed, will be born. Birth matters to God. It always begins with a birth. So understand why another birth is so incredibly necessary. There is actually only one way to enter into the kingdom. You must be born into it. Or as Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Have you been born again? If you have, let there be a smile on your face because you are ready for the kingdom. J. Vernon McGee said this about Samuel. He said, in Samuel, we observe three things our world needs, a king with power who exercises that power in righteousness, a king who will rule in full dependence upon God, and a king who will rule in full obedience to God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming king of kings is the very one the world so desperately needs, and he commands you, commands me, to be born anew. And the ascendancy of Jesus is gonna be known soon, I believe, in this world. Father, we thank you for this new book before us and, and the, the pages, Lord, that are laid out before us, weeks, months, perhaps. It, it's your call, Lord willing, if we're able to finish the entire scroll. I pray, Father, that your blessing would be on your people and on, on all of us together, that we would hear the words of this teaching this morning and through Samuel. We will see and look for the ascendancy of the Christ. We will, Lord, lean into him and trust in him and believe in him for all things. Lord, we love you. I pray that everyone among us this morning, this service and next, are born anew. And if anyone is not, that that would take place here today. In Jesus' name, amen.